uh, night by night as we spend time in the Word of God together. And let me just say once again how grateful I am for how warmly uh, you've welcomed me and how uh, much I feel at home here amongst you. Thank you very much for those who've shown me such kind hospitality. And uh, it really has been a pleasure to be here, and I mean that uh, sincerely. Please turn with me to Ezekiel then. And we're going to be looking with the Lord's help this evening at the second and the third chapters. The second and the third chapters of Ezekiel, as I've said, we're only going to be able to scratch the surface, as it were, of this wonderful book of Ezekiel this week. And although we're looking at the first three chapters, uh, we will then be able just to uh, dip into the rest of the book and look at some highlights. So let me just remind you of the framework that I gave you yesterday for what we're going to be looking at with the Lord's help this week. Last night, we spent time in the heavens. And last night, we spent time uh, in the presence of God and looking really upon the glory of the Lord as we looked at this glorious throne. This vision of the chariot throne of God and the living creatures and the wheels within wheels, and it could slightly mystify us, but wonderful. What a picture of the glory of God there in Ezekiel chapter 1. Now this evening we're going to look at chapters 2 and 3 and we're going to consider the call of the prophet. The call of the prophet. And we're going to look really at the call and the commission. If we could call chapter 2 his call, we could label chapter 3 his commission. And then tomorrow night if we're spared and if the Lord hasn't come, then we will look at the sins of the nation in chapter 8. In chapter 8, the curtain is pulled back for us into the abominations that are found in the temple of Ezekiel's day. Really the spiritual issue, the spiritual problem of Ezekiel's day, and we're going to explore that together. And then, God willing, on uh, Thursday, we will look at the restoration of God's people uh, in chapter 37. And then lastly, as we draw the week to a close, we'll look at the glory of the future temple. And we'll dip into some highlights in chapters 40 to 48. Now, uh, let's turn to chapter 2 and chapter 3 and consider together the call and commission of the prophet We're going to look, uh, first of all, of course, at chapter 2. And let me give you a a structure for chapter 2. So first of all, in the first four verses, we're going to think about the character of the people. The character of the people that Ezekiel is called to minister to. Secondly, verses 5 to 7, the courage required. The courage required of a, this man of God in this hour, this decisive hour in the nation's history. So the character of the people and the courage required. Thirdly, just one verse, verse 8, the conduct demanded. The conduct demanded. If a man such as Ezekiel, this priest torn from the land of promise, is going to be an effective, pure, and righteous witness for the God of heaven, he's going to have to minister to a people of a certain character. He's going to need courage, and he's going to need a certain purity of conduct. Verse 8. And then lastly for this chapter, looking at verses 9 and 10, the content of the message. What exactly is it that Ezekiel is to convey, to communicate? To the people of his day. Now we'll look at chapter 3 in the latter part of the meeting, but I'll give you the structure for that as we come to it. So let's deal with chapter 2 first of all, and let's just read the first four verses. And before we do so, let's just seek the Lord at a further time in prayer together. Almighty God and dear Heavenly Father, we come before thy throne once again this evening 
and it's been our privilege already to worship thee and to listen to thy call to take the message of the gospel to the nations of this world. And Father, as we meet again in thy presence this evening, we remember the vision of the glory of God that we considered yesterday, and we just recognize before thee, Father, our smallness. We recognize, Father, thy great transcendent majesty. And we remember, Father, to judge ourselves soberly in thy presence. And we think of the solemnity of it all, Father, as we meet together this evening in thy presence, that the Lord Jesus Christ is here amongst us. What a wonderful thing that is, to have the presence of the living and ascended Christ amongst us. We pray that the Holy Spirit would work this evening amongst us in our hearts and in our minds. We pray that he would be our teacher this evening, that he would have free reign amongst us and in us, and that we might be receptive listeners to thy word this evening and that we might have ready hands and feet to put it into practice. And so, Father, we pray that this meeting would be of eternal value. We ask these things in the precious and lovely name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. So let's consider, friends, for a moment or two, the character of the people that Ezekiel was called to minister to. And let's read the first four verses of chapter 2. Remember that he has fallen on his face in the final verse of chapter 1 and he hears a voice that's speaking and remember we noticed that God had to take this man and put him on his face. God had to take this man from a priestly family who could have had pride in his lineage and he had to put that man on his face before he would hear a single word from heaven. But now the words begin and we'll read the first four verses. And he said unto me, Son of man, son of man. Take notice of that expression. We're going to hear it many times in Ezekiel. He said unto me, son of man, stand upon thy feet and I will speak unto thee. And the spirit entered into me when he spake unto me and set me upon my feet that I heard him that spake unto me. And he said unto me, son of man, I send thee to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that hath rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me even unto this very day. For they are impudent children and stiff-hearted. I do send thee unto them, and thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God. Amen. And God will add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. And so we find that the Son of Man is being spoken to here in chapter 2 and verse 1. And I want us to mark this and I want us to remember it and store it away in our minds as we continue our studies in this book because it's a characteristic title of Ezekiel. In fact, um, I brought some commentaries along with me uh, over from from, uh, Glasgow uh, so that I could have a little uh, study time each day and, and just go over things. And one of the commentaries I have by Andrew Blackwood is called The Other Son of Man. The Other Son of Man. It's a commentary on Ezekiel, and it really is drawing the parallels between uh, this book of Ezekiel and our Saviour. And our Saviour, because, of course, when we think of the Son of Man, we think of our Saviour. We already had cause, remember, yesterday to cast our minds back to Daniel 7. And that vision I saw in the night visions, and there one like a Son of Man, and he comes to the Ancient of Days, and he's given that everlasting kingdom. Often it's said, and and rightly so, 
that the expression son of man in the Gospels, especially in the Gospel of Luke, uh, primarily it's, it's used a lot in that Gospel, it emphasizes the Lord's humanity, and that's absolutely right. But in the Jewish mind, they would always have gone back time and time again to Daniel 7 and remembered this position, this title of the son of man. And so we need to bear both of those in mind, that yes, it's a human title, but it also has a great prophetic significance for a Jewish reader uh, of Ezekiel's prophecy, a Jewish hearer of this message from God. 85 times in this book, Ironside tells me, uh, wonderful commentator H.A. Ironside, always recommend him. Uh, 85 times in the book of Ezekiel, this word is mentioned, this phrase. Well, what does the, the word of the Lord do? The vision of God puts him on his face and the word of God takes him up and sets him on his feet. Every born again Christian in the room this evening would be able to testify of that. That in some way, at some time, through some impression, through a word shared somewhere at some point, God has put you on your face and lifted you up again and put you on your feet. He's lifted you up, hasn't he, out of the miry clay and he's set your feet on the solid rock. All of us would have a different testimony, but we would all be able to unite in that, that God has taken us up and his word has put us on our feet. What are the sort of people that he's called to minister to? What were his mission field? Who were these people? Well, they were rebellious. They were stubborn. They had always been so. From the very moment that they were redeemed from the land of Egypt, they had never stopped being rebellious and stubborn. And they had conformed to type time and time again. And yet, of course, the Old Testament is the story of God's patience, isn't it? The story of God's steadfast love in covenant to this nation who had time and time again let him down so very badly. And again, every Christian in this room would be able to identify with that because daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, we let the Lord down and never once, never once has he ever failed us. Consistently, constantly patient and kind with us. Well, if we were to think about our own society, if we were to think about our own society of Britain today, and I'm sure that Northern Ireland's just a bit different um, from Scotland, but maybe not that different, and we are living, aren't we, in a very rebellious age, a very stubborn age. And let me just draw your attention back to those familiar verses in Romans and chapter 1. Let me just draw you back to Romans and chapter 1. These verses will be well known to you, but of course they paint a vivid picture and a very accurate picture of the age in which we live. Romans chapter 1. And we'll read from verse 28. And this, of course, was a picture, uh, an accurate picture of Paul's day, but it just could not be more apt for our generation. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, uh, malignity. Whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death. And then here we have something which characterizes our age, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. The larger question I want to ask this evening as we reflect on the people that Ezekiel were called to, uh, that Ezekiel was called to, I want to ask the question of myself and pass it on to you, is who are we called to? Who are we called to? 
What mission field has God placed us in? Because notice this. Ezekiel wasn't given the option of choosing his mission field. God didn't say to Ezekiel, is there a people that you have a heart for? Is there a place that you have a burden for? Is there somewhere you would like to serve me? No, but Ezekiel's book starts like this. As I was among the exiles. As I was among the exiles. I have a missionary uh, biography on my shelf of a a brethren missionary um, in China. And uh, that's the title of the book. As I was among the exiles. Who do we find ourselves amongst? Because automatically, brothers and sisters, they are our mission field. Every single born-again Christian is a missionary. I'm sure we all believe that. Every single born-again Christian is a missionary. Isn't it funny how there could be a sister in our church, in our fellowship, and she's a nurse. She's a nurse in the hospital down the road. We only start praying for her when she gets on a plane and goes to Zimbabwe and does exactly the same job in another country. We're all missionaries, wherever God has placed us. Who is your mission field, may I ask you? Who is your mission field? And I want to reflect on that a little bit tonight. Who has God sent you to? Because it's a difficult people. And I know that Northern Ireland might be a little bit different. And I know there might be a little bit more knowledge of the gospel here than in other parts of the country. But I'm sure you would agree with me that evangelism in our day and age is not an easy task. It's not an easy task. Now, it's never been an easy task. There is this, uh, this myth going around, and I've fallen prey to it many times, that it was, easier in a, it, it was easier back in the day. You know, you could advertise a meeting and the hall would be full, but, you know, the opposition that we face pales into insignificance to the opposition faced by evangelicals of a previous day and generation. I was just speaking to David recently um, about uh, some testimonies of, of people that I've met in Romania. And uh, maybe four or five years ago, I started to go out to Romania to teach the Bible there. And it was very humbling because I was speaking to believers who had put things on the line for serving and following Christ that I've never had to be asked to put on the line. And there was a woman, particularly the last visit I made in December of last year, there was a woman who got up um, at a sort of social gathering to give a little bit of her testimony And with tears in her eyes, she remembered how when her family made the move from the Orthodox Church to the local evangelical church there in their village, that her aunties and uncles and cousins lined the road and spat on them the whole way as they made their way uh, to the evangelical church on Sunday morning. Her own aunties, her own uncles, her own cousins spitting on them as they made their way up the street. It's always been hard. In fact, it's very often been harder than it is for us today. And of course, we face things that people haven't faced before, and we face maybe a greater degree of apathy than perhaps there's ever been before. But I wonder if we comfort ourselves with that. If we comfort ourselves with, oh, it's very difficult now. People just don't want to come in now. But the question that haunts me is are we really trying? Are we really trying? We cannot choose our own mission field. We don't have that luxury. Ezekiel didn't have it. God was telling him in black and white terms, I'm sending you, Ezekiel, to people who don't want to hear you. They don't want to hear what it is you have to offer them. Now, friends, if we were to get a team together and go into the center of Belfast or uh, Lurgan or something 
and give out hot drinks and uh, maybe give out free magazines or uh, help people with all sorts of different social problems in their life, we'd be welcomed, wouldn't we? Warmly welcomed, I'm sure. The moment we start to maybe preach the gospel in the open air or hand out tracts that are clearly gospel literature, that warmth of welcome is going to stop from many. It's very, very easy to offer people something they already think they want and need. It's another thing entirely to bring the gospel of salvation before men and women. Because on the whole, they don't want to hear it. And that's why in so many quarters and in so many parts of the professing evangelical church, we have gone down the route of simply offering to people what it is they already want. And that way we can fill our churches and that way we can seem as though we're active. And yet when are people coming face to face with the claims of the gospel of the Lord Jesus and the only route from hell to heaven. There's courage required in that. So let's look at the second section, courage required. And let's look from verse 5, from verse 5 of chapter 2. And they, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear... For they are a rebellious house, yet shall know that there hath been a prophet among them. And thou, son of man, be not afraid of them, neither be afraid of their words, though briars and thorns be with thee. And thou dost dwell among scorpions, be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, though they be a rebellious house. And thou shalt speak my words unto them, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear, for they are most rebellious." This task of taking the gospel to a lost and dying world is a task which requires courage. It would require courage of Ezekiel and it requires courage of you and I. And I ask myself the searching question tonight, am I prepared to ask God for courage? It doesn't lie in me. I can tell you that for certain. It doesn't lie in me naturally. And let me gently say it doesn't lie in you naturally either, friend. God can give us the courage to reach the lost and take the gospel message out to those who so desperately need to hear it. I wonder sometimes if we grasp the urgency. You know, sometimes you'll maybe be walking in a city centre or uh, a town and, and you'll see a Christian. And perhaps they have a placard or perhaps uh, they're preaching in the open air and maybe it's just not quite how you would have done it. It's not quite how you would have gone about it. It's a bit clumsy maybe. It's a, it's a you know, not very sophisticated and um, you would have done it differently. You know, there's a part of us, isn't there, that, 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 that maybe can feel embarrassed sometimes at the way that, that evangelism is done by other believers and yet we need to remember, don't we, that perhaps that man, perhaps that elderly man with his sandwich board or perhaps that woman with a, a tract that looks a bit old-fashioned, perhaps they've grasped something of the urgency of the gospel that I haven't grasped because they are, they're doing it. And I'm just an armchair critic. They're out there doing it. This would require courage. We're not responsible, are we, to save our lost neighbours? We're not responsible to save them. But we are responsible, aren't we? And it's a solemn responsibility to be a witness to the lost and dying around us. To be a witness. Not every Christian is an evangelist. Not every Christian is an evangelist. But every Christian is called to be a witness called to be a witness to the gospel of the Lord Jesus and to take on our lips this message, this saving message of salvation. Sometimes it's those who are closest to us that are the hardest, isn't it? Sometimes it's those who are dear to us, family members, 
neighbours who we've known, friends who are not saved, and it's those near and dear ones that can sometimes just sting, and the rejection hurts all the more. And yet, of course, we're patient with them, as God is patient. And time and time again, we try, and we try, and we try, and we never give up. Because God didn't give up with us. He could so easily have washed the divine hands of us. And yet he didn't. He persevered. And he sent his son all the way to the cross of Calvary. I'm talking tonight about the gospel. And I'm talking tonight about the job of sharing the gospel. But let me just pause for a moment and ask you a personal question this evening. Have you believed the gospel? Have you believed the gospel? And are you a Christian this evening? Have you placed your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation? Because I'm going to be talking more about this tonight. I'm going to be talking more about this call to evangelism that is so clear here in Ezekiel 2 and 3. But you know, I wonder tonight if there would be somebody here this evening who would take that step this evening of placing their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation for the very first time. I remember when I moved to London. Uh, London was new to me. And um, it's very, very busy, as, you've know, as you know, if you've been to London, it's a bit intimidating to start with. Uh, I had to commute on the underground an hour uh, into London, an hour out of London every day, 10 hours a week on the underground. Nobody talks to you on the underground, and if you try to talk to them, you'll end up getting a carriage to yourself. And, um, and people look at you very strangely if you try and make conversation. But, you know, I was quite intimidated by London when I first arrived. And from a gospel point of view, I felt this sort of ache in my heart. Because, you know, I would go in on that hour journey into the tube, on the tube into London, and it would be very, very rare, very rare. I worked for two and a half years, very rare for me ever to recognize a single person. So I made that same journey with the same commuters into London, an hour each day, there and back, five days a week, very rare to recognize a single person. So I was seeing millions of people. Millions of people from all over this world. And I just wondered, how on earth can we even begin this task? In a city like London, how on earth can you even begin the task of reaching these people with the gospel? And then, of course, you remember, well, just reach one today. Just speak to one person today. Just hand out one tract on your way to work. Just speak to one person. Just make sure that when the opportunities come, you take them with the Lord's help. And that we are speaking of Christ. Because, of course, it's not just my job to reach London. There are thousands and thousands of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ in London. And if we were all out there in the week speaking about Christ, spreading the good seed of his word, uh, whether it's tracts or leaflets or in the open air or whatever way we can broadcast this amazing message to make it known because men and women are going to go to hell without it. This required courage. But there was also a conduct demanded. Read with me verse 8. Read with me verse 8. But thou, son of man, hear what I say unto thee. Hear what I say unto thee. Be not thou rebellious, like that rebellious house. Open thy mouth and eat that I give thee. It is vital, isn't it? Absolutely vital, brothers and sisters, that we are separate from the world. That we are separate from the world. Sometimes when people hear teaching on separation, it conjures up images in their mind that are unpleasant, uh, unpalatable. And yet, of course, we hear the cry of the word of God, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Be ye holy, for I 
I'm holy. And we could say, that sounds very good and and that's a wonderful, noble aim, but you, you don't know the sort of people I live amongst. You don't understand the sort of language I'm hearing day in and day out and the the things that are flooding in upon my life day in and day out and you're asking me to be holy in the midst of all of this. And the Bible says, yes, we're asking you to be holy, to be spotlessly pure in the midst of all of this. And I ask myself the question again, pass it on to you. What is flooding into my life? What am I allowing into my life? What am I watching What am I listening to? What am I reading? What am I allowing to fill the hours of my day? And is it feeding my soul? Or is it drip by drip by drip feeding the world back into my life? And allowing me to be squeezed into the mold of this present age of darkness? There was a conduct demanded, be not thou rebellious. I'm calling you to a rebellious people, but the very basic starting point must be this. You mustn't be rebellious. How can we hope, friends, to reach a lost and dying world if we go on to behave and to be characterized in just the same way as that lost and dying world around us? We must be salt and light, and therefore we must be pure. We must be different. We must be distinct. Now, this, of course, doesn't mean removal from society. There's a balance to be struck here, and we'll touch on that in a moment. But let me turn you to John 17, please. John 17. Back to the high priestly prayer. We've already been here a couple of times so far this week. John 17, one of my favorite chapters in Holy Scripture. Very seldom do you get such a detailed insight into the Trinity, into the relationships in the Godhead. And here the son is pouring himself out before his father. And what a privilege that we get to see it, hear it and read it. John 17, and read with me familiar verses from verse 14. The Lord says this about his people, and it includes us this evening if we're Christians. I have given them thy word, says the Lord Jesus, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, Listen to that. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Is it possible to live a holy life in 2023? Is it really possible to live righteously and godly in 2023? I ask myself that question. I face myself square on with that question, Ian, is it possible for you, with God's help, to live a righteous life in 2023, or are we beyond it now in our society? Is there no hope now for Christians? Do Christians just have to settle for compromise, settle for lukewarmness and half-heartedness, because after all, the society in which we live is so far gone, surely we can't expect righteousness from Christians. And yet, of course... The testimony of the word of God just speaks resolutely into that situation and says, no, I'm calling you to exactly what I've called my people to from the very beginning, and that's holiness and purity, separation and righteousness, that you're to be my people, a people peculiar to me, a treasure for my own possession. We must be different from this world. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 6, please. 2 Corinthians 6. 
And let's read from verse 14. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And here the command comes, wherefore come out from among them. And be ye separate, saith the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing and I will receive you. So often that verse, verse 17, is misappropriated and uh, people use it to justify church splits and church politics. And yet what is the command here? It's really separation, not primarily from other Christians, it's separation from the world. Separation from the world. Wherefore come out from among them and be ye separate. So here we have the balance. On the one hand, we have this clear command, come out from among them and be ye separate. And then we have the cry of the Lord Jesus, I'm not asking you, Father, to take them out of this world, but to keep them from the evil in this world. It is possible to be in the world and not of the world. It is possible, even in our day and generation. So there's courage required, but also conduct demanded. And now let's look at verses 9 and 10 of chapter 2. Verses 9 and 10 of chapter 2 of Ezekiel. And we see the content of the message being introduced here. And we'll touch on this briefly before we move on. And when I looked, behold, a hand was sent unto me. And lo, a roll of a book or a scroll of a book was therein. And he spread it before me and it was written within and without. And there was written therein lamentations and mourning and woe. Friends, what was the message? What's the content of the message that Ezekiel was to bring? Well, it's a message of judgment, a message of coming judgment. Remember, he sees the chariot of God. He sees the onward march of those wheels within wheels. And here is coming the throne of God out of the north where Babylon had come because judgment is coming. Judgment has already fallen on the children of Israel. That's why they're separate from the land of promise. That's why they're off in a godless nation, the nation of Babylon, and they find themselves by the river Kibar. And it's not an accident of history. History, of course, is his story. He's sovereign in it all. And there they are by the river Kibar because of judgment, the judgment of God for apostasy, for sin, for departure from the things of God. The content of this message was a message of judgment. Friends, we're going to touch in a moment on the message that we have for this world. And it's a different message from Ezekiel's message. And yet, of course, judgment is part of it, isn't it? Judgment is part of the gospel message. Because we are called to tell a watching world, a dying world, that judgment is coming. That judgment is coming. Can I ask you this evening, if you're not a Christian tonight... If you have never placed your faith and trust in Jesus and never accepted him as your saviour, can I just remind you, can I just remind you solemnly, and I say it absolutely sincerely, and I say it from my heart to your heart, judgment is coming. All of us will be judged. Outside of Christ, we will be judged in our sin and we will all of us be condemned. And those of us tonight who are in Christ have that wonderful declaration, there is therefore now no condemnation. 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, Satan's great job, brothers and sisters, is to dis. Uh, disillusion you to that fact, is to distract you from that fact. Satan, of course, one of his titles is the accuser of the brethren, and he draws alongside us, doesn't he? And he says, ah, yes, but I remember, I'm going to dredge up what you did last week, and remember that thing you said when you thought no one was was listening, and remember that thought that you had that flashed across your mind, and, and it shocked you even how dark it was. Remember those things, I know them. And yet we say to him, but Satan, let me tell you about my saviour. He's standing at God's right hand. He's a living saviour. He went to the cross for me. And there on Golgotha's hill, he bore all my sin. And I have to answer for none of it. It's all been done away with. And I have had the stamp of divine innocence placed upon my life. The spotless righteousness and purity of Christ made over to my account. And if you're a born-again Christian tonight, and you're sitting here in Points Past Baptist Church, You tonight are absolutely spotlessly innocent in the sight of God. Now that's an amazing thing. And our flesh wants to deny it. And Satan wants to disguise it and distract us from it. But it's absolutely true. We're called to holiness and we all know there's work to be done. So much work in our lives for that ongoing practical work of consecration. But remember that legally speaking... You are absolutely spotlessly righteous in the sight of God. And it's got nothing to do with your performance or mine. But God has made the righteousness of Christ over to our account. Isn't that a wonderful thing? A wonderful thing to know and love the Savior. Well, let's think about chapter 3. Let's think about chapter 3. And I've got four very simple headings for chapter 3. The Word. A Witness. A Watchman. A Warning. The Word. A Witness. A watchman and a warning. Let's read the first three verses, thinking about this word that Ezekiel is commanded to consume. Moreover, he said unto me, Son of man, eat that thou findest. Eat this roll and go speak unto the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he caused me to eat that roll. And he said unto me, Son of man, just remember how many times you're hearing that statement, cause thy belly to eat and fill thy bowels with this roll that I give thee. Then did I eat it and it was in my mouth as honey for sweetness. Let me just come right to the point, brothers and sisters. Are we being daily filled from the Word of God? Are we being daily filled from the Word of God? I don't know very many of you personally, and I certainly don't know anything about your walk with the Lord on a personal level. But can I just ask you to honestly assess this evening before God, are you feeding daily from the word of God. The word of God is here referred to as honey, sweeter than honey. And we remember, of course, Psalm 19. It's sweeter than honey, isn't it? Sweeter than drippings from the honeycomb. There was a a man, I was talking about him earlier today, but there was a man called, uh, well, he's he's still alive actually, Lord Mackay of Clashfern, very godly man uh, from uh, the Highlands of Scotland. He was actually Lord Chancellor for a while um, uh, under Margaret Thatcher and um, he, uh, he's a great donator to, to Christian causes, a wonderful man. But uh, he's quite frugal, quite frugal in his own personal living. And uh, he invited some people for, for breakfast one day uh, to his, his home, his castle up in the Highlands, and he had breakfast laid out for them. And there was various jams and butter and there was toast. And uh, somebody asked for honey. And they were, 
and they were faced with this absolutely minuscule pot of honey. It was absolutely tiny. And apparently he turned to Lord Mackay of Clashfern and said, Ah, I see your lordship keeps a bee. This tiny little pot of honey. And you know, sometimes, friends, that's what believers are content to live on. We feel we've read our Bibles if we've picked up our devotional book from our bedside table. And one verse at the top of the page, and then a whole spiel that a man has written about it. Now that paragraph, that page that that man has written about it might be absolutely wonderful. And it's lovely to have a little bit of honey as an extra, isn't it? But imagine living on that. Imagine seeking to mature on that basis of a devotional book, one, one little drop of honey from the Word of God, and then what a man has to say about it. That just won't do. It just won't do, friends, for maturing uh, on the Christian pathway. He was told to consume the Word of God. Are we doing that, friends? Are we consuming? Are we digesting the Word of God? Can I just say to the young believers here tonight, can I just um, speak to you just for a moment? Can I just plead with you from my heart to your heart? Can you please, I would beg you, to make the study of the Word of God the absolute priority of your life? The absolute priority of your life. Whatever else it is God's called you to do, whether he's called you to be a joiner or a a farmer or a doctor or a plumber, whatever else God's called you to do, whether he calls you to the mission field or into Christian service or to be a father or a mother, whatever God's called you to be, make the study of the word of God your absolute priority. Whether you're a girl or a boy, make the study of the word of God your absolute priority. And the, the, the repayment that you will get from this wonderful book will far outstrip the effort that you put in before God in simply seeking to study this book. And can I say something practical about that too? And I'm sure that uh, there's lots of people in this church that can give you advice um, about beginning to become a student of the Word of God. But it's better to do something consistently than to seek to do uh, a lot very, very quickly and then give up. I know so many young Christian people who make a resolution and they say, well, I'm going to get into my Bible. And so they wake up at six o'clock in the morning and they read Genesis before breakfast. And then, of course, that only lasts for two days. Just remember that doing something consistently, being faithful in the small things and making sure that there's a constant drip feeding of that pure honey from the word of God in your life, the effects and benefits will amaze you as you allow God's word to change you and to mold you. So we have the word, and then we have this call to be a witness. Read with me from verse 4. Read with me from verse 4 of chapter 3. And he said unto me, Son of man, go get thee unto the house of Israel, and speak with my words unto them. For thou art not sent to a people of a strange speech and of an hard language, but to the house of Israel. Not to many people of a strange speech and of an hard language whose words thou canst not understand. Surely, had I sent thee to them, they would have hearkened unto thee. But the house of Israel will not hearken unto thee, for they will not hearken unto me. For all the house of Israel are impudent and hard-hearted. Behold, I have made thy face strong against their faces, and thy forehead strong against their foreheads. As an adamant, harder than flint, have I made thy forehead. Fear them not, neither be dismayed at their looks, though they be a rebellious house. Moreover, he said unto me, Son of man, all my words that I shall speak unto thee, receive in thine heart, and hear with thine eyes, with thine ears, and go get thee to them of the captivity. 
unto the children of thy people and speak unto them and tell them, Thus saith the Lord God, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear or refuse to hear. Then the Spirit took me up, and I heard behind me a voice of a great rushing, saying, Blessed be the glory of the Lord from his place. I heard also the noise of the wings of the living creatures that touched one another, and the noise of the wheels over against them, and a noise of a great rushing. So the Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went in bitterness in the heat of my spirit, but the hand of the Lord was strong upon me. Then I came to them of the captivity at Tel Abib that dwell by the river of Kibar, and I sat where they sat and remained there, astonished among them seven days. Friends, God is calling Ezekiel very clearly, very powerfully to be a witness for him. Verse 5 tells us that he has been sent to his own people. He's been sent to his own people. We've already covered the fact that we are all missionaries. Now, some people are called to the mission field. I have uh, probably one of my closest friends, um, Joshua Kay. And um, him and I had a gospel mission in his home village of Skelmanthorpe in Yorkshire uh, just a few months ago. And uh, it was really the first gospel mission that he or I had ever done. And it was wonderfully encouraging. The Lord was so good to us. But he's a missionary uh, to the Congo. They had to be here for a year uh, because Kerry's mum, sadly, was very, very ill and has gone to be with the Lord. Uh, But now that she's gone to be with the Lord, once they get her affairs in order, they will return to the Congo. Now, God very powerfully and very clearly and very definitely called Josh and Kerry Kay to the Congo, and they have no doubt about that. But you know, friends, the vast majority of us will never be called to the Congo. The vast majority of us will be called to be exactly where we are right now, as missionaries for the wonderful cause of the gospel in our neighborhoods, in our streets. Something that was posed to me a while ago was this. Would your neighbors, if asked, Would your neighbours, if asked, be able to give the basics of what it is that you believe? Would your neighbours, if asked, be able to give a basic account of what it is that Christian couple down the street believe? That's a great challenge. That is a great challenge. But if we've been in a neighbourhood for a while, if the answer to that question is no, If the answer to that question asked to me is no, my neighbours wouldn't be able to tell you anything about what I believe. How can that be right? How can that be right in this day and generation when people are lost and dying and going to hell all around us that my neighbours wouldn't be able to say, yes, well, I received a leaflet from them once. Let me go and get it and I'll, I'll be able to tell you. Or, yes, they've said a few words to me over the garden fence at least. Or, They offered me in for a cup of tea and and they did speak to me a little bit about Jesus and be able to give just a few basic points about what it is that we as Christians believe. Is it a good thing that we live in the street where we live? Is Is it a good force for the gospel that God's placed me or you where he's placed me or you? We're called to be witnesses. Notice the order. Notice the order. Um, a Verse 10. Notice the order. I shall speak unto thee. I shall speak unto thee. And then we have, receive in thine heart, hear with thine ears, go get thee to them of the captivity. And then we, and then we read, speak unto them and tell them, thus saith the Lord God. What do we have there? A receptive heart, open ears, ready and willing feet to go, and an open mouth to speak and to tell the gospel of the Lord Jesus. I made a note in this uh, 
chapter and uh, put it in the margin of my Bible and I called it the anatomy of a prophet. And I saw this receptive heart and these open ears. In verse 2, we have an open mouth to receive the word of God. In verse 8, we have a hardened face to withstand opposition with God's strength. In verse 10, we have an open heart to receive and to treasure the word of God. We've got ready feet to go and to tell. We've got open mouths, open lips ready to speak the message of the gospel. In verse 26, we've got a tongue controlled by God himself. Verse 14, we read that he goes in bitterness back to Tel Aviv to speak to these very captives. What what does he mean by that, to go in bitterness? It means that what's on God's heart, the sadness in God's heart over the idolatry of the people has now become part and parcel of Ezekiel's own heart. I wonder if you and I ever feel that sense of God's, of the tragedy of disobedience all around us. The tragedy of sin all around us. Are we broken hearted for the sin that we see all around us? Or have we grown accustomed to it? You know, you walk into the, the sea uh, on a warm day. You go to the beach, you walk into the sea. And to start with, it feels ever so cold. But the longer you spend in it, the warmer the water gets. As your blood temperature rises. It can be like that with sin, can't it? It can be like that as day by day by day we are surrounded by sin and wickedness and filth all around us. And in the end, we cease to feel the sting of it. And in the end, we cease to have broken hearts for the lost and dying around us. And the reality of hell becomes something that we just put in a box in our minds. And we fail to remember this great call to witness. Verse 15, we see his approach. He sits where they sit. He sits where they sit. Now again, this is in balance with the teaching on separation. But notice this, the Lord Jesus didn't say, take them out of the world. It's not removal, but it is separation. And yet he sits where the people sat. That's what Hudson Taylor did. He went to China and all the missionaries at that time lived in a compound. They lived a lovely rarefied life. They went to their swimming pool and they had their tea parties and and they had their school, and they had their hospital, and they were very well looked after in the missionary compound in China, thanks very much. And they didn't have to mix much with the locals, just go out there and make the gospel known and rush back to the compound where they felt comfortable. And Hudson Taylor says, no, I'm going to go and sit where they sit, and I'm going to dress how they dress, and I'm going to make it my aim to be as Chinese as I possibly can in order to reach these people, just as Paul did, to be a Jew to the Jew and a Greek to the Greeks. Are we willing, friends, to go out of our comfort zone to sit where they sit? Or are we demanding that they come into where we feel comfortable? You know, friends, for all the believers who are here this evening, we're used to going to church. We're used to being here. We're used to dressing like this. But what about all the unsafe people out there tonight? It's a big leap for them to come in here. It's a big step for them to come in here. There might be men and women and boys and girls out there in this district of Northern Ireland who'd be quite frightened to come in here because of the perception. Same in Scotland. Would I be willing to go and sit where they sit? Let's read on. And just as we bring our thoughts to a close, let's read from verse 16. And it came to pass at the end of seven days that the word of the Lord came unto me saying, Son of man, I have made thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore hear the word at my mouth and give them warning from me. 
When I say unto the wicked, thou shalt surely die, and thou givest him not warning, nor speakest to warn the wicked from his wicked way, to save his life, the same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Yet if thou warn the wicked, and he turn not from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. Again, when a righteous man doth turn from his righteousness and commit iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because thou hast not given him warning, he shall die in his sin, and his righteousness which he hath done shall not be remembered, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Nevertheless, if thou warn the righteous man that the righteous sin not, and he doth not sin, he shall surely live, because he is warned, and thou hast delivered thy soul." Friends, if you were to come to Fife, where Rebecca and I lived, before we moved to Renfrewshire, you would find that the central part of the county is very flat. There's hills uh, up to the north towards Kinrosshire. There's fishing villages and cliffs around the sea. And the central part of Fife is called the Howe of Fife, H-O-W-E. I don't know if you use that word in Northern Ireland, but in Scotland it means a a low-lying agricultural area. And you've got this flat part of Fife. And there's lots of orchards. And um, there's lots of soft fruit grown there and, uh, and crops, of course, too. And uh, what do you find as you go along? Even if you, you go on the train through Fife, you'll see watchtowers. You'll see watchtowers. And they're built periodically through the fields, uh, just a simple structure on four struts. And somebody, some farmhand or something, will station himself in this watchtower to watch out for fire to watch out for uh, some sort of damage happening to the crop. And it's because, you know, there's no raised ground, so it's difficult to see for far. And that's the idea of a watchtower, is somewhere to keep watch over God's people, somewhere to watch out and to warn from. And Ezekiel occupies this place as a watchman. He's called to be a witness, but also to be a watchman, both inside and outside of God's people. The warning must be given. The warning must be given, and it must be heeded. He was a proclaimer of judgment, of the coming judgment of God. And we too are able to say to a watching world, there is judgment coming. But friends, we are not Old Testament prophets. Friends, we're not Old Testament prophets. We are New Testament gospel proclaimers. And part and parcel of it is to tell them that judgment is coming and that hell awaits without Christ. And yet the wonderful privilege of being a born-again Christian is to be able to say, There's wonderful good news. Ezekiel wasn't able to say that in his dispensation, in his era. And yet here we are, we're able to say there's wonderful good news. There's a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. There's a door that is open and you may go in at Calvary's cross. It's where you begin when you come as a sinner to Jesus. I can go out into the streets of my town. You can go out into the streets of your town and make a genuine offer to the men, women and boys and girls of wherever it is you live. And say, if you will trust Christ, if you will take him as your Lord and Savior, you will be saved of all sin. You will be completely and utterly and totally and eternally forgiven. And you'll have a place in heaven. Can I just ask you, friend, again tonight, is that you? Have you placed your faith and trust in Jesus? Have you accepted him as your Savior? If you've never done that, please, will you do so tonight before it's eternally too late and before you have to face this judge on the throne of judgment, and you will be condemned in your sin. A watchman. We are watchmen too, but proclaimers of good news. 
The book of Hebrews gives us this instruction. Just read this with me uh, before we bring our thoughts to a close. Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls. For they watch for your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. I'm so glad that God has gathered us together in local companies of his people. Yes, he saved us, and yes, we're redeemed, but he's not left us as individuals, has he? And the Christian life is not designed to be led in an individual way alone, is it? And we're not designed just to be floating Christians, just going from place to place, but he's gathered us together, hasn't he, in local, identifiable companies that we call churches or assemblies or fellowships of his people. And what a joy it is. What a privilege it is to belong to a local church. And can I just plead with you again to value that, to place high value on your local church, because in that local church fellowship, God has put providentially watchmen, watchmen. And their great task is to keep watch for your soul. And what a wonderful thing for you to be somebody for whom they can do that with joy and be a watchman for your soul. Well, we end with this warning. We end with this warning and let's read from verse 22. Verse 22 of Ezekiel 3. And the hand of the Lord was laid upon me and he said unto me, Arise, go forth into the plain and I will there talk with thee. Then I rose and went forth into the plain and behold, the glory of the Lord stood there as the glory which I saw by the river of Kibar and I fell on my face. See friends, exactly the same result as we saw in chapter 1. He sees the glory of the Lord and he falls, he falls upon his face. Then the Spirit entered into me and set me upon my feet. So there we have the same pattern again. And speak with me and said unto me, Go, shut thyself within thine house. That's not what we're expecting. But thou, O son of man, behold, they shall put bands upon thee and shall bind thee with them and thou shalt not go out among them. And I will make thy tongue cleave to the roof of thy mouth, that thou shalt be dumb, and shalt not be to them a reprover, for they are a rebellious house. But when I speak with thee, I will open thy mouth, and thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, He that beareth, sorry, he that heareth, let him hear, and he that forbeareth, let him forbear, for they are a rebellious house. Three very simple things as we close. His movements were shut in. His ministry was shut down. His mouth was shut up. We remember lockdown, all of us, don't we? And we could hear that cry, uh, that commandment from the throne of God, go shut yourself within thy house. We all had to do that, didn't we? We had to shut ourselves within our houses. And I remember I had not long entered into full-time Christian work. And I felt quite discouraged, I have to say, And I shared my heart with Rebecca and I said, you know, I've entered into full-time Christian service, but it's been weeks now since I've had a genuine conversation about the gospel of the Lord Jesus with a lost person. Because we're not interacting with people. Even in shops when we go in, everybody's avoiding each other and being socially distanced. And it felt like so long since I'd had a genuine conversation with an unsafe person. I remember the way the Lord answered that prayer. And uh, I probably shouldn't take the time to tell you it, but... It was a, a repairman, the, the element on our cooker blew. 
And if I had a practical bone in my body, I would have been able to fix it myself. But as it were, I, uh, as it was, I phoned this uh, uh, repair uh, man who came and, and he came into the house and he set himself up in, in front of the cooker and he brought the cooker out of the unit and um, we got chatting. And I dropped in a few things about the Lord and a few things about the gospel to see if he would react and, and sure enough he did. And he said, what sort of church do you go to? And I said, well, my wife and I go to a little uh, gospel hall in the village of Ladybank. This is when we lived back in Fife. He said, oh, I used to go to one of those. I said, did you? He said, yeah, my mum died when, when me and my brother were just wee boys. But before she died, she used to make sure we went to the Sunday school at Tayport Gospel Hall. And I remember that. I remember this person and that person. Do you remember them? And I, w- I was able to say, yes, they're still alive. And I- I'll contact them and tell them about you. And we had such a wonderful conversation about the gospel of the Lord Jesus, able to go right through the cross and right through the call to salvation. Now, he didn't trust the Lord there and then. I wondered if he would, but he didn't trust the Lord there and then. But he finished off by saying, it's not an accident that I've come to your house today. It's not, not an accident that I've come to your house today. And I said, well, I couldn't agree more. And uh, then it was lovely to be able to contact these men and say, do you remember this young boy from your Sunday school? He still remembers uh, what went on there. Take encouragement from that if you're involved in any sort of children's work. That seed uh, would take a long, long time to grow into germination with him. Well, his movements were shut in, his ministry was shut down, his mouth was shut up. But then God says, but when I speak to you, I'm going to open your mouth. I'm going to loose your tongue. We only have authority to speak on the basis of the word of God. The only authority that you and I have to say anything to a watching, a dying world headed for hell is on the basis of this book here. My message for the people of Renfrewshire means nothing. Your message for the people of this district of Northern Ireland is of no value at all. God's message is the only gospel of salvation. It's the power of God unto salvation for all them that believe. In Amos chapter 8, we read about a famine. It's not a famine of bread and it's not a a drought of water. It's a famine of the word of God. How good to be able to be an antidote to that and to spread this gospel as far as we can with as many as we can before the rapture of the church, before we are removed and we see the Lord face to face. Let's pray together.